Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to uh, Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and uh, we're going to again talk to you about the Kingdom of God. And I always set out these programs reviewing a little bit of what happened during the week and uh, how this all fits into the gospel because it seems to be most relevant. A lot of the uh, breakthroughs in understanding the kingdom take place simultaneously with different people. And uh, so sometimes the, the... the thing that they need to break through, the thing that they need to overcome is also kind of simultaneous with people in different areas. And so whatever I see going on sort of in the field, I used to say whatever happened in the field where the sheep are was happening in the network, was happening out there in the world where the network resides. There's, you know, you've heard us talk about this word world over and over again in the Bible in the New Testament, there's a particular word that means constitutional order or system of government according to the concordance in its translated world. And there is other words that are also translated world that mean things like age or inhabited places. And uh, they are running side by side. And when you're reading the Bible and you read the world here, you don't know which one it is unless you go back to the Greek, which you shouldn't have to do. But uh, what we're doing when we're putting together the Bible online for different study groups, uh, different study times, we're going to try to get every every book in the Bible eventually uh, with a study by it. So you can take a look. And we're already taking things like the word world and we're highlighting it so that when you see that word, you can check instantly which word it is that you're looking at. And then you can go into your prayer closet and ask God how to interpret this particular verse, knowing what the author actually said. Because if the author used a particular word and the translators translate four different words, even five different words, into that single English word world, you're going to miss something. You're not going to hear what the author was trying to tell you. You're going to hear what the translator is trying to tell you. Now, ultimately, what you have to hear is what God is trying to tell you. And even if you could read Greek, doesn't guarantee that you're going to hear God. But... If they remove you, you know, it's like uh, first cousins and second cousins and second cousin once removed. You get farther and farther away from the truth every time somebody translates or interprets a particular verse in the Bible or the Bible itself. You get farther from what the author was trying to tell you when he was inspired by God in writing the book down. Now, no matter how far away they get you from the truth, if you let Christ in, you can find your way back. We're just trying to educate people, give them the right knowledge about what the original authors 
were trying to actually say, what words they were actually using. And you'll see this more and more as we put these old study guides in there to show you what word was actually used by the original author. What those words meant at the time, because that's another way they get you farther away. They change the definition of words. Like religion is one of the paramount ones that they change the definition of religion from the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man, which is in conformity to pure religion as defined by James, to what you think about God. Now, the problem when they do that, well, I mean, there's lots of problems. Obviously, they turn what is a duty, according to James, who says you'll be judged according to your works. And if you don't have works, you probably don't have faith. And Paul and Peter and John all say the same thing. And we went through and we created a little template that you will see pop up here and there within the web pages that show you. In the footnotes, all the quotes where they're telling you to test your faith, to examine your faith, to make sure your faith. By what? By what you're doing and what you're not doing. If you're not doing what Christ said to do, if you're not doing what the early church said to do, your faith is lacking. Now, I'm going to... Actually, was this morning for an hour or so, I was listening to uh, Greg Boyd who is a preacher, I guess, up in Minnesota. Uh, and uh, he, I think he's really searching. I mean, he has a big church, and I see band instruments behind him, and uh, he's up there interpreting the Bible, but he may not be far from the kingdom. I only listened to him for a little while. I think I've heard him before. But uh, he was getting a lot of stuff right. And you could see kingdom tracks in what he was saying. But he's still getting a lot of stuff wrong. But what he's getting wrong, I think, is more from lack of knowledge. And he talked about his history, you know, where he came from. He came from Catholicism when he was a boy. And then he ended up not believing all that stuff when he was about 16, 17 years old. Or I guess earlier than that, he started, stopped believing that. But when he was about 16 or 17, he started getting into, you know, introduced to Jesus freaks and introduced to other people who actually had some sort of belief in Christ. And he kind of liked what he was seeing. But this is this is where the rub comes in. Is liking what you're seeing isn't necessarily what is actually going on there. It's what you're seeing, what you think you see. You know, like, and, and this is, this is something that keeps coming up throughout your life is that you're, you look out at a particular set of events in front of you and you see those events and what they mean to you. But somebody else look at the same events, read the same book, look at the same movie. And they see something different. <laughs> they don't see what you see. Because if you get down and you say, okay, now tell me what you saw. You know, they they saw something completely different than what you saw. That's a, that's a good exercise is to understand a particular section of the Bible or a certain verse of the Bible. That you you read it 
Everybody reads it, and everybody writes down a few notes on what they think it said. And then you start getting an idea what, how they look at things. I've been doing this for, you know, over half a century. Looking at what, the way people see something that I'm looking at. And I'm, I'm astounded sometimes, especially with modern Christianity. They don't see what I see. Of course, I had to get away from them. See, I had a Catholic background. And when I was about 16 or 17, I was having this revelation that something, you know, I had a lot of revelations up to that point, but it was a serious turning point about that, 16 or 17, where I started saying, this is not right. They are not telling me the truth. And yes, they could all be wrong. So I really started questioning things. Now, Greg Boyd says he became an atheist at that point, didn't believe any of it. But uh I didn't do that. Uh my my relationship was too deep. I I I just didn't believe in that version of Christianity. And to tell you the truth, as time progressed, there wasn't very many versions I did believe in. <laughs> so and uh but then I had to come out here to the desert and then suddenly when I admitted that when I look at the text, I can't figure it out. I kept saying, that's not it, that's not it, that's not it, that's not it. And finally, when I realized I can't figure it out, then God just started showing me. And then I have to go out and share with you what he has shown me. And you have to decide what you see. The problem is, the problem is, is that you and everybody else out there once you have begun to be faithful in your religion as it is defined what you think about God, that becomes your idol. That becomes your God. That Because that's the image of God that you have that came out of your interpretation of the Bible or of religion. And that is your religion. Your interpretation. You are faithful to your interpretation of Scripture. And that's the process. Now, you, you can say, no, God has revealed this to me and all that stuff. Yeah, okay, okay. What's the works? Because that's how it works. If we're going to test whether or not you've had real faith and your interpretation is correct, then we have to say, what's your works? And measure them up against, you know, like the Ten Commandments. That's pretty basic. That's not the ordinances of men. That's the Ten Commandments. And so if we measure what you uh, are doing up against the Ten Commandments, can any of you say you do not covet your neighbor's goods in any way, shape, or form? You do not desire any benefits from anybody that is the result of taking something away from your neighbor that he did not really want to relinquish. He may have to relinquish it because he has a contract, he may own taxes, he may be under tribute, he has to pay or go to jail. But can you want what he has to give up, what is not freely given? Do you want that in any way, shape, or form? Well, you cannot want any government benefit at all. 
no matter uh, if it's education for your children, care for your parents, uh, care for the needy in your society, care for your children who may have needs. And, you know, your parents may have needs in their old age. But you cannot want, that's coveting, benefits at the expense of your neighbor that are not completely and truly freely given. If they're given by force, even though they've signed the contract and they owe the tax, you cannot want those benefits. If you do want those benefits, if you do desire those benefits, then you are coveting your neighbor's goods. And you are in violation of the Ten Commandments. And if you think that's okay, I doubt your faith. That doesn't mean you don't have some faith. But if you don't want to see the whole truth, you, your, your faith is in need of repentance. And this was the thing when Jesus was out preaching, people would hear him say this and they say, yeah, yeah, let's follow him. Yeah, 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 let's follow him. Yeah, yeah, let's follow him. And all of a sudden they get to a point and they say, oh, wait, wait a minute, we're out of here. And he tells about that. Now they all leave. And they're out of here. <laughs> because he got to a point where they didn't want to go that far. Well, everybody's there somewhere. Some of you are maybe got two or three of those humps ahead of you <laughs> that you you will have to overcome to continue your search for the kingdom. Uh, some of you may have five or six or ten or twelve. I don't know. Maybe some of you only have one. But we all have them. These challenges to our beliefs and our faith. And see, you go out there in the world and you look and you tell me where you find a church doing what the first century church does. I often mention the Amish because the Amish are taking care of one another. You know, they they have a whole system of health care and everything. Of course, they're pretty healthy people, generally speaking, but they take care of one another. And that's a good thing. That's a very kingdom thing. But what are the Amish doing that's not very kingdom? They're trimming the corners of their beards. <laughs> so what does that mean? That means they're separating themselves from the world by rituals and tradition not mentioned by Christ. Not in the doctrines of Christ. And, and you know, they set themselves apart and out of the world. They actually want to be out of the world. But Jesus sent us to be in the world. Just not be of it. Well, they're often not of it very much. But they are uh, separating themselves. And not really seeking the kingdom of God. They're, you know, a lot of them are probably not far from the kingdom. But. Many of them are oppressed within their own society. They do a lot to try to keep them from doing that. When you say Amish, there's not just one group of Amish. There's all kinds. There's militant Amish. I mean, they actually had Amishes raiding other groups and shaving off their beards, and, and you know, in a violent way. So there's all kinds of Amish, but they do take care of one another for the, for the most part. And so that's a good characteristic. They're not looking for the benefits of the world. But they're also not looking to be the saviors of the world. And every Christian should be looking and sacrificing daily 
so that the people of the world might be saved. And, you know, not again, not contributing to or taking away from the Amish. They do have missionaries out there, but they're, they're preaching. A lot of what they're preaching is their religion. But anyway, we, we had a call this weekend, uh, or this week, and I just released the audios for it. And, uh, we went through a chapter at the Free Church Report, which was the chapter on pure religion. And we had a number of questions that came up and comments that came up at the, uh, after the first half hour or so. And, uh, and I responded to them. And it took a little longer editing the program. So we kind of get all the ums and uhs out of there and, and the repetition so that we consolidate it down. So it was pretty close to an hour long discussion of this particular chapter and what it was all about. And, of course, it was about pure religion, which James defines as taking care of the needy of your society. Abraham set up altars to actually take care of the needy of society. Moses set up altars to take care of the needy of society. And he set up a network of altars to help take care of other nations. Not just Israel but even other nations. The red heifer was to take care of other nations, to be to share charity outside the camp. And if you don't understand that, go to our website, Preparing You, and read the articles. And then come back and argue it. Uh, if you're just going to say, no, you don't agree, and you're not going to look at the way we present it and show you how it worked, then, you know, I really don't have time because you didn't take time to do your homework. But Abraham and Moses and Jesus Christ were setting up living altars from the beginning. And those living altars received the sacrifices of the people. And the sacrifices of the people, even according to the Talmud, which is what Corban is, it's a sacrifice. That's what it means. The word Corban means sacrifice. It appears twice in the New Testament. And once it's transliterated as Corbin, which again should have been written down as sacrifice if you're going to actually translate it. And uh, the other place it appears is translated treasury because that's where they kept your sacrifice was in the treasury. And the re- what was the treasury there for is to take care of the needy of society, the, the widows and orphans. Now, the real Corbin of early Israel was given into the hands of the Levites. And those Levites used the funds both for their own personal support and so that they could dedicate time to taking care of the needy of society and to be used to take care of the needy of society, to provide them with assistance if they needed assistance. And this was done through an intimate network of congregations that gathered together for that purpose. And when they did that, it was called worshiping God because they weren't following the religion that they had constructed in their mind. They were following the religion, which is the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man, as defined by God through Abraham, Moses, and Jesus Christ. And that was the exercise of pure religion. 
And that's what the early Christians were doing, which is why they were called uh, uh, a Christian republic, a viable republic in the heart of the Roman Empire. And uh, an ever-increasing state, that they called it. Well, this was before Constantine. And so, Greg Boyd also talks about Constantine, and we'll probably do a whole series on him. And, and I just wasn't ready to start the whole series this morning because I was still researching more about him. But uh, I wanted to get through some of this. One of the questions on the uh, the study call at uh, for pure, and you can go listen to the audio if you go look up pure religion of Christ in the Free Church Report. You can go to the table of contents and you can go down and find it. And the audios are on that page. But uh, the question was coming up that he was looking at the network and he wasn't seeing them doing what the first century church did. And I do see some of the patterns of the first century church just beginning. And last year, at the beginning of the the summer, I had planted a field of oats. And I went out and was looking for them coming up, you know, a week or so after I planted them. And you could see cracks forming in the ground through the line of where the seed was drilled in. I drilled in the seeds. I broadcasted the seeds. I've done this with horse-drawn equipment, everything. But I was using a little, it was a bigger field, so I was using a little bit bigger equipment that belonged to somebody else. And uh, But I was doing it so that I'd have some hay for the few animals we have here. And I, I could see this crack, and then I'd come back the next day, and you'd see the the seeds popping a little shoot of green, wasn't quite green yet because it really hadn't hit the sun, coming, you see it visible in the crack and then the next day you would start seeing them popping up and then you'd see these little lines, these thin lines of of grass, oats, popping up and row after row after row and it would, you'd slowly see it grow. And so I gave him the analogy that when we look out in the network, we're barely cracking the ground. The seeds are in the ground. We're all in the ground. And we're dead. And we have to die before we really come up. And Christ has parables about this. The seed has to go in and die. Change. It's no longer a seed. It won't be viable. It comes up. Now when it comes up, weeds can choke it out. Birds can come. And of course, we had birds in the field (laughs) out there trying to pick up the grain before it sprouted. And, uh, but it was all coming up fast. And, uh, then you have to, then we did have some weeds come into the field and all this stuff. But eventually we had a, a pretty good crop and we mowed it all and baled it all. And, uh, and that, that was the, the analogy was the fact that that seed has to die first. And a lot of the people in our network, a lot of people who think they're Christians, they're not really dying to Christ. So they're not really born again. So we're going to get into what that means to be born again and become overcomers. And to understand what that gospel is and how it works in you. Because that's where it needs to be, in you. We'll be right back.
So welcome back. So one of the things he, and a lot of this has come up several places, he talked about uh, kind of the fellowship that is people are looking for and they're looking for, they want an organization. And and Greg Boyd also talks about that idea of the church. Uh, he refers to it as hyper-organized model of the church. And he says it did not work. Well, you know, I, I haven't listened enough of, to him to find out what he means by hyper-organized, but I have a pretty good educated guess since we both have a Catholic background. Okay, I agree that the hyper-organized model not only didn't work, it actually works to the antithesis of Christ's message. And we can go into that later when we go through the series. But did Christ organize anything that we could call the church? Because the apostles were using a word that we translate into church, ecclesia. And, and Moses called out the church in the wilderness, which was the Levites. And Jesus called out the apostles and probably called out the 120 in the upper room. And he appointed to them a kingdom. You know, 12 apostles, 120 in the upper room. So there's a pattern looks like there's going on there. And so we have to discern that pattern because it's not detailed out, but there is, there is kingdom tracks in this pattern because right away we know because of John, telling us that anybody who got the baptism of Jesus Christ was cast out of their system of synagogues. We know by history that at that time, Herod had set up a system of social welfare, run through the temple where the money came up through the synagogues and went back to the needy of the people according to their needs. And uh, they had a whole system to pay out benefits, to pay out welfare, to pay out free bread, just like Rome, because Rome had a system like that too. They didn't have it 500 years before when they became a republic. But they had it at that time. And after Augustus came in, it had already begun 300 years before during the time of Polybius. And even though it was r- relatively small compared to what it became in the days of Augustus, it had already begun 300 years before Polybius, which would be about 200 years after the beginning of the Republic. Well, in America, there was no food stamps, welfare by government agencies 200 years ago. There was none. Not really. There there was talk of it from time to time, even up until the time of Davy Crockett. They talked about taking money from the public fund and using it for the needy. Now, they did that once in Washington when there was a big fire, Washington, D.C., there was a big fire and they took money from the common fund to help out the the people, the burn victims. I mean, whole blocks just burned up. People ran out of their house. They were naked. They didn't, they lost everything. It just burned to ashes. And the government came in with some assistance. Now, local people also came in to, uh, to the process of assistance, but the government actually took government funds to assist them. And this created an outrage in America Because that's not the purpose of the government funds. Now, what was the government funds at that time? And we have this whole story up at Preparing You. Just look up Davy Crockett and you can hear the whole story. And also how it was related to Davy Crockett, who was in Congress at the time and somebody asked for money for a widow. 
And he said, no, that's not what the funds, you know, it was a widow of a soldier. And she received something, but she didn't, she wasn't receiving this pension. And they wanted to change the rules so that she could get it and make a special allotment. And Davy Crockett argued against it. He said, now, if we want to give her something, I will reach into my pocket. And if all the men in this august chamber would reach into their pocket, we can take care of this widow. But it is not the purpose of the money in the treasury of the U.S. government. Now, how did, like I said, how did that money get into the U.S. government at that time? Through posts and tariff taxes and occasionally excise taxes. Now, those taxes aren't just imposed. They, there, there's a process to being able to put those taxes on. If you're putting taxes on imported goods that are coming from outside the nation, which you really shouldn't be doing, but that's the way it was set up. Israel didn't have that. They had a reason to trade amongst themselves. When they tried to create a situation where they would do that, where you you would be penalized if you dealt with, you know, you bought stuff from another nation because they wanted to keep their wealth with them. And they the, what they set up as a system, a monetary system, where the wealth was all kept in one place. And then you would have a script that had no value outside of the community. So you would have to cash in the script to buy something outside of the community. It created a economic loyalty to buy within the community. Like, like, you know, the movement Buy American. You know, people want to, I know guys who actually pay more for a product if it's made in America than if it's made abroad because they want to keep the money home. That's an individual choice and that is great. But when you try to create a system that forces the people to buy in your enclosed community, that's not a good thing. And that's what the Israelites were doing. That's part of the reason they created the golden calf was to create that economic loyalty. Also, military loyalty because you could, if the enemy was attacking and you ran off, all your gold was in the golden calf and you would lose all that. Gold was portable wealth. You could travel, you know, you could, you know, Five ounces of gold in your pocket was a lot of money. You could go almost anywhere and buy, you know, a pretty good estate from the local inhabitants plus a bunch of equipment and help and everything and build a new life for yourself if you just had five gold pieces in your pocket. You would come into a community wealthy. Five silver pieces wouldn't have been as much, but gold would. So they made the statue out of gold. So you would not flee in the face of the enemy unless you were willing to flee broke to the next community only with what you could carry. Because it was almost every other form of wealth was not very portable. Uh, at least not when you're running across the desert. Because <laughs> your flocks aren't going to keep up with you <laughs> either. So that this is what they were doing is they were creating a system that demanded the loyalty of the people. And Moses said, no, that's wrong. That's not what you want to do. You want to create loyalty based on something else. And that's why he created the altars. He wanted that loyalty to base on love, that you took care of their parents when they were little kids and their parents needed help. You took care of them when 
they needed help. When your mother was sick, they t- they came to your aid. When your father w- was injured, you, they the community came to your aid. And that creates a loyalty of love in your community. That's fellowship. And they all believe one thing. The nature of that system of love. Which is why Moses said, Love thy neighbor as thyself. And in essence, with his sacrifice to the red heifer, he also said, love your enemy. Love your neighbor outside of the community. And so they had this foreign aid. And if you don't know that, if you think the red heifer is actually looking for a cow with no white hairs in it, so that you can slit its throat, set it on a pile of stones, and burn it up outside the camp, you are under a delusion. And that's why we wrote the article, so you can see why we say that, which we're not going to go into here. So you can disagree with it, but if you don't look at the article, then you you really, you know, you can win any argument if you're all alone in that argument. You're a guaranteed winner because you don't actually pit your position against anything else and against anybody else. I mean, you're, it's like doing virtual push-ups. You imagine yourself doing push-ups. You're not going to get stronger. You're, you're not, you know, you go to the rifle range, but you don't take any ammunition because you're just going to pretend you hit the target. Well, you can be the best shot in the world if that's the way you work. And that's what you do when you have arguments with me by yourself. <laughs> you're going to win that argument. Guaranteed. Go ahead. <laughs> But then you didn't actually, you didn't actually accept the challenge of looking at at the facts and weighing it against what you already think you know, which just ain't so. So anyway, this this idea of the the kingdom and going this other way, this other operation and creating a fellowship based on love and personal sacrifice. That is part of the rituals and ceremonies of the kingdom of God. That is the practices of the kingdom of God. And that will take a certain form because of the nature of the universe. But what gives it its spirit is that spirit of sacrifice, that spirit of service to others, that spirit to set others free, not just get your own freedom but to set others free. This is the Spirit of Christ. He came to set others free, that they might be saved. He is one that comes to serve. Now, a complaint often is is that we don't have a network that is visible that people can come to. They want to see where this is all happening, you know, like some sort of Renaissance picture. Where this happens, see, again, we're seeking a spiritual kingdom, but we're giving you the parameters that you will see As you get close to that kingdom. But you don't get close to that kingdom by moving to Poughkeepsie or moving to Summer Lake or moving to Wichita. You get close to that kingdom by moving closer to the character or name of Christ in what you do, in the way you think. You're changing of your mind. If your mind changes because your heart has changed, Because your soul is actually seeking the light. You see, that's where it starts. 
you actually are willing to receive the light. You shut up and you listen to God instead of what you have already created in your mind that you worship. Your religion. You worship your religious dogmas and doctrines and theologies and philosophies. And you pay men big bucks to promote that, to give you something that you can gather around and say, oh, here it is, we've got it. But that isn't seeking the kingdom. Because the kingdom of God is within you. But yet we talk about this form and this network and that you should join the network and that you should form congregations. But the destination is not the congregation. And this is one of the reasons why people keep falling into that rut is they want the comfort and of the congregation, the comfort of the group, the comfort of the fellowship. But do not thieves and robbers do the same thing? They they get their buddies together, their mafia buddies together, and they have loyalty, and they have big eating, and they pat each other on the back, and they kiss each other on both cheeks. They can have fellowships. But that's not the love of Christ. Our Who is our comforter? Is it the congregation? Is it the church? Is it the minister who gives really cool sermons? Is it the band? Who is our comforter? It's the Holy Spirit. And you do not find the Holy Spirit out here or over there or in Summer Lake or wherever. You find the Holy Spirit in you. Now, you may go to these places and talk to people and ponder these things in your own prayer closet. But you only find the Holy Spirit within you. That That's where it will be revealed to you. That's where your soul is. I was talking to somebody earlier this week that the mind controls the body to some degree. There's a lot of things that the body does that never seem to actually go through the conscious mind. There's the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. But scientists are coming to the conclusion that the mind is actually controlled by something else they call the heart. Which is somewhat true. You can The person can be brain dead and they still be alive. But if the heart stops, they die. <laughs> so the heart seems to trump the brain. What trumps the heart? Well, it's actually the soul. And that's why we did this series on soul. You can go look, look that up and uh, listen to the audios on that. But the soul is actually where you connect to heaven or to hell. It's where you hear the voice of God is in the soul. And now there's also the soul as as a corporeal and incorporeal hereditaments of personality. But the incorporeal ones, the non-physical ones, is the spiritual soul that can connect, touch, you know, like um, like the painting where Adam is reaching out with his finger and God is reaching out with his finger and they're almost touching. Well, that's the yod. That's the divine spark. That's you connect to that, you plug into that through the soul. And then the soul sends what message you receive from that spiritual realm to the heart. And the heart sends it to the mind. And the mind sends it to the body. 
One of the things, when you look at the translations, you'll find the word soul translated life many times. And you'll also find the word that's translated heart occasionally translated life. And the word mind occasionally translated soul. And so, you know, what what is what? And the reality is, is that they're all connected. They're just, it, it's like, kind of like a capacitor. And it, so that you have, if you had uh, half a pound of conductive material and you were putting electrons in it, you could only put so many electrons in it. It would only receive so many. And then somebody touches it, they might get a little spark because it has it. But if you put in a wafer of conductive material and a wafer of an insulator, a space, and then another wafer of conductive material, and then another space, and then another conductive, then another insulator, another conductor, then another insulator. What you're doing is creating what they call a capacitor. And a capacitor can hold a great deal of energy. It can become literally not only a repository of energy, but a conductor of energy through this these insulators. Even though there's insulators there, it can actually store up energy that can come out instantly. And you can you won't get a little shock, you'll get a big shock. Well this is how you're constructed. You have this soul, heart, mind, and body. And there's a veil between each one in nature. And they can pick up a charge. And that charge can have a pattern. Now, if you plug your soul into heaven, you will create one pattern in your life. If you plug your soul into hell, you will get another divergent pattern. It may seem similar, but it will also be different. You see, because the world takes care of its widows and orphans. In, in many countries, they have huge programs to take care of the widows and orphans and needy of their society. And the kingdom of heaven is supposed to do the same thing. That's what religion is. But the kingdom of heaven does it without coveting its neighbor's goods. It does it through love, not force. It does not force you to put your wealth in a golden calf or a central bank or any of those things so that they demand your economic and military loyalty. The kingdom of heaven doesn't do that. But yet, your economic loyalty and your military uh, power, which is really, it's that even operates different than the world. But there is a, a place where you stand up to evil. But you stand up with the weapons of God and the armor of God. But you still stand up to evil. You don't go off and hide because bad guys are coming. You show up and the bad guys back down because behind you is this big freaking angel <laughs> and the Holy Spirit. Or they may even occasionally be out in front of you in the form of a pillar of fire. <laughs> so, anyway, but that is where you take your stand. That's that's the church militant. It's not the vandals of pagan temples. And that's another issue that we, we will be addressing farther along in this series. Is this idea of uh, tearing down the uh, temples of evil. And, uh, you know, you go to Deuteronomy, thou shalt ye deal with them, ye shalt destroy their altars, and break down their images, and cut down their groves, 
and burn their graven images with fire. Sounds kind of militant. And and Greg Boyd actually uh, quotes that in his treatment of Constantine. And uh, he's right. You know, I can kind of see the right spirit in what he's saying. But that's not actually what Deuteronomy is saying. <laughs> the translators have played a little fast and loose with the words because there are there are two words that we see translated very similarly as destroyed. And uh, they they are slightly different, but they are they have certain similarities in them. And uh they both have this nun and they both have a tav in them. They have a little bit different ending, but the idea that the uh, these words mean break down, throw down, destroy, cast down, best beat down, pull down, break down, and that's the word we see there as destroy their altars. It doesn't really mean to go up there with a sledgehammer and smash them to pieces. That's not the way you just. That's not a part of our battle plan. Our battle plan is to put those altars down because we raise the altars of God up and people say, that's better. The people who can see that will see, that's better. That is, that's working. That is the way it should be. And we've, we've only just kind of had a few little kernels of grain break above the ground long enough to actually do that. In our network. But it's happening other places. We're not just focused on our network. And we're not trying to create our network. That's why we call it His Church. Or His Holy Church. Because we're trying to support Him. We're trying to edify what He said to do. We're not trying to create another religion. Another hyper-organized religious institution. We're showing you a pattern. Now, if you look at what we're saying, there is no pope. There there are overseers, but they are not exercising authority. None of the ministers can exercise authority one over the other. They can't hew one another with the making of ordinances. They are gathered together in the pattern of the law of God, the Ten Commandments, which include loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. But not just getting together, you know, for little block parties and, uh, you know, go down to Pizza Hut and have all uh, pizza together and and sing songs together and get a good band and, you know, everybody clap their hands and do some swaying. That, I mean, that can give you a good feeling, but anybody can do that. That what brings the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, which is Spirit of Service. And I hear, I hear Greg Boyd mentioning that. And But they say that they're looking for the solution. Well, now here's where, you know, he when he first started going this way, he had, he said, I think thousands, uh, 20% of his church. I don't know how, how big his following is, but uh, he had a lot of people go away from them. And, uh, well, now if you take it to the next level, guess what? You're going to have another group going away. <laughs> Well, the next level is that you have to realize that loving one another and taking care of one another and being of service to one another isn't just helping somebody take the garbage out. It's actually becoming the entire social welfare 
of the people gathered together in the name of Christ. Because that's what they did on Pentecost. People aren't ready to do that yet. You're not going to do that all at once. But that's the direction you want to be going. But we'll be right back. So welcome back. So we were talking a little bit about fellowship. And so what is fellowship? What is that really all about? We have an article on that also at Preparing Union. Go take a look at that. But uh, if we look at Luke, uh, say, 6, chapter 6, verse 30. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy good, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also them likewise. Well, again, this is uh, some of the problems of um, dealing with the text because sometimes Jesus is talking specifically and sometimes he's talking about a principle and sometimes he's talking about things in a metaphor or a parable. And so you have to take time Find out what that is. And again, the only way you're going to actually know what he's saying is not me telling you. Because every situation is a little bit different. But it's the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. In order for the Holy Spirit to dwell in you, you have to set aside your personal spirit, your personal ego, your personal vanity. You have to have the humility to realize that you can't figure this all out. You haven't figured this all out. What you're holding up as your religious beliefs is probably more an idol than anything else if you think religion is what you think about God. Now, there are right doctrines, and they are the doctrines of Jesus Christ. And so here he's telling us something. So what exactly is he telling us? You hear one thing, someone, and when he says, If someone strikes you in the cheek, turn to him the other cheek. Well, if he strikes you in that one, do you turn to him back to the first cheek again? Or do you just, until he beats you to death? Uh, And then kills your family? And, you know, so what's he trying to say? I mean, he did tell his apostles to, if they didn't have a sword, go get a sword. But yet he was a peacemaker. Well, you don't have a sword to make war. You have a sword to stop war. So, now, how do you do that and remain true to Christ? This is where it gets blurry for a lot of people. Because they're, and the reason why it gets blurry for a lot of people is they don't really love their neighbor as themselves and they certainly don't love their enemy as themselves. They, they, they want power over others. And this is what we see in the Constantinian church, which has nothing to do with Christianity. The church was started by Constantine. The the people talk about the Constantine legalizing the church. When did the church become illegal? It wasn't illegal at the beginning because at the beginning Pontius Pilate said this is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. 
And the people had already said, Hail, highest son of David. Christ. Christ means anointed. Who's the anointed? The Messiah. What does Christ mean? It means Messiah. He was already hailed as the Messiah, the King of the Jews, by the people when he came into Jerusalem. It was the power structure, the hyper-organized church in the wilderness that wanted to get rid of Jesus. It wasn't all the people. Because thousands and thousands of people became Christians. Which was the new Jew. At Pentecost, those are all Jews. The Jews did accept Jesus Christ. The hyper-church did not. It still doesn't accept Christ. It has created a false image of Christ. So, and, and you know, as far as that is concerned about, we'll get into this a lot more heavy in other places, but, uh, you know, farther down the line. But there, there's a lot of quotes in the Bible from, you know, Galatians 6.16. And as many as walk according to the rule, this rule, peace be un on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. So they're telling you in Galatians that these people are the Israel of God that are walking according to these rules. John talks about walking according to what? The rules of Christ. Love thy neighbor as thyself and love God with a whole heart and mind. That's Israel. But people want this thing. They want, you know, like, I mean, there's all these Christians who want this thing. They want this church. You know, they want to see it and go there and be in the building and, and see the people singing and saying all the same words and reciting the same hyper prayers over and over again. <laughs> they want that because, but that's idolatry. That's worshiping a thing created by the hand of men. You have to overcome that before people can really start coming together in the name of Christ. Israel over there in the Middle East, that's not Israel. That's a place calling itself Israel. There, the, Some of the Israel of God may be over there, but it also may be in Poughkeepsie and, <laughs> and Summer Lake and in uh, Wichita. It may be almost you know, in Australia and Sydney. Who knows where it is? Because it's only where people are walking according to this rule of peace and mercy. That's where Israel is. And and that's what they're telling you over when they're talking about Abraham, the man of faith, those who walk in the ways of Abraham, even the prophecy to Abraham. It's wherever your foot walks. It isn't some geographical location where you can go to and, oh, now we're here. Now, there may be geographical locations that are going to be important. But they're only important because you're walking according to the Spirit of God. And the only way you can walk according to the Spirit of God is you let His Spirit in you. Now, Greg Boyd talks about the fact that, you know, he had this, he touched God at this point and accepted it. And I don't know. I wasn't there. That's what he claims. But he admits that there isn't one single date that where suddenly, you know, you were not saved and now you're saved. Uh, no, he says that that was a moment in time that stuck out for him. But he says it's a process. 
And I would agree with that. You cannot leave off this idea. Because so many people have stopped the process because they had this emotional experience. Well, that's ridiculous. It's like, you know, you're driving to L.A. And you get to the sign that says, Entering L.A. And you're just so thrilled that you finally made it there that you stopped the car. Well, until you get beyond the sign, <laughs> made it. And and even then, you may have a lot of driving to get to Disneyland <laughs> or wherever you're headed. So, you have to walk the walk. I mean, the Christianity was called the way. The Christians were the Israel. That's why John talks about them that say they are Jews and are not. The ones who were real Jews, the, I mean, the real citizens of Judea, was the Christians. Because they're the ones who accepted the king. All the ones who rejected the king, they were no longer Israel. I don't care what their bloodline was. They were out. And then when Christianity was preached all over the Roman Empire and beyond, many of those people who were descendants of Israel, they became Christians. And even if they weren't descendants of Israel, they could become Christians and be adopted in. Because it was about the walk of faith. Because that's where the blood of Jesus Christ, and it literally, it literally will change the DNA of your blood when you accept the Holy Spirit. It will activate things in your body that would not be activated otherwise. And it will do a lot of other things besides. But anyway, that's that's part of the metaphysical acceptance of the Holy Spirit. So people have these emotional experiences and, you know, August 4th, 1920 or whatever. <laughs> Don't stop. Stay in the process. Ephesians 2.12 That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And that word is constitutional order or system of government. That's talking about like Rome. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye whom sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Now, Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, King Jesus. That's what he's saying there. But now, in King Jesus... Ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. That veil. He's broken down that veil so now we can receive the messages of Christ directly into our hearts and then into our minds. So he can write upon our hearts and our minds. Because he's broken down that veil. But. That isn't necessarily you. Out there going to church. Calling yourself a Christian. Unless you. By your works. Are conforming to the pattern of God. Which we see in the Ten Commandments. Which we see in the teachings. And doctrines of Jesus Christ. Who told us not to covet. And the teachings the New New Testament teachings, over and over again, all the apostles are talking about not coveting. You know, Peter says that you will even be made merchandise, human resources, through covetous practices, be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. And it tells you all this. 
But people think, no, well, we're saved. We don't have to do anything. Well, you don't have to do anything to be saved, but you do have to repent. You do have to forgive your brother. And if you're still wanting to take from your brother through the exercising authority of men who call themselves benefactors because you paid in, therefore you think you have a right, then you haven't forgiven your brother for squandering everything because they're not giving you what you pay in. They're giving you what they borrow from the future of your children and grandchildren and your neighbor's children and grandchildren. This is no-brainer. You should not have any trouble seeing this. But it's different than what you've heard. So, yeah, Greg Boyd, he's gone off and he's they've got a little block, a community where they're trying to help one another. Well, are you ready to become the entire social welfare of your community? And not just for your community, because if you just do it for your community, there's no grace. You know, that's one of the problems with the Amish, is that a lot of them do a great deal for each other. But they they don't realize that Christ has a kingdom that reaches all around the world. and But they are, they are only interested in other guys who trim the corner of their beards like them. You know, and wear the hats like them and have the suspenders like them. Now, some of them do reach out. But the reality is that the example is to be this entire social welfare for you as well as for the sacrifice of the red heifer. We're not ready for the sacrifice of the red heifer. We're not even taking care of one another. Everybody on the block where Greg uh, lives, are they moving in the direction to become the entire social welfare for their church? No more Social Security to take care of their parents. They're going to do it themselves. No more public school. Uh, they're going to take care of all education to themselves. Maybe a little private school, but mostly home taught. And they just kind of, you know, maybe... You know, like one of these home-taught uh, forums uh, or clubs where most of the education is done at home, but they also get together so that they can trade ideas and see where everybody's going, challenge each other, etc. So, you know, no welfare. That They're now going to... And what's going to happen when you start doing that? People are going to start starting their own businesses and... And become uh, financially independent within that community. They're, you know, they're going to go to each other. And if they're thinking outside of their local congregation, which you have to if you're thinking kingdom, you cannot be just structuring your local congregation. It's 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 like pulling teeth to get a congregation of ten people to actually care about everybody and and show up. You know, we're so spread out. And we don't want to have everybody moving to one place because we're we're planting seeds in a field and you don't plant them all. You know, it would have been really easy if I just put all those seeds into about one acre instead of drive over 40 acres. I just planted them really, really thick in one acre. Well, of course, they'd all choked each other out. So you, you don't plant all the seeds in one acre. You spread out 40 acres of seeds in 40 acres. <laughs> so... We're spreading out our seeds all over the world as best we can. But the way you water those seeds is that is God raining on your heart and on your mind. But you have to show up 
for the watering, which is, you know, for the gatherings and for, because you have to interact with other people. And like I, I've told people who were isolated in their congregation, okay, you can't, you can't all get together every week. But you take one day and you go out and you do something for somebody. Like I, I, the one guy told, look out your window. What do you see down your street? And there was an old lady carrying out her garbage can. I just told this story. And I says, never let that old lady drag that garbage can out alone again. When she goes to, you know, on the garbage day, you go over there and you stand by her house about the time she usually takes it out and you help her carry that garbage can down to the, or even go knock on her door and say, you know, I see you having a hard time getting, I'd like to come over and on garbage day and take your garbage can down to the, to the edge of the walk for you. And then once he started doing that every day religiously, <laughs> then he could take it to another level. And that would have, that would have changed his whole life if he had pursued that. And, but they, people don't want to do that because they're not ready to actually pursue the kingdom. They're just pursuing their own self-righteousness. You're supposed to be uh, pursuing the kingdom of God. And his righteousness, not your self-righteousness. But they create a a religious philosophy, a political or social dialogue. And then they try to imitate that and bolster that in their own mind. And that's not where it's at. It it goes on in, in verse 20. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together, groweth unto the holy temple in the Lord. Well, he's not talking about dead stone temple. The same as they weren't talking about a red cow being sacrificed. You're the temple. You're the holy temple. Each of you are the stones and and clay altars of that temple. And you have to be that government of God, providing benefits without exercising authority, providing benefits for your community through faith, hope, and charity to the point where it eventually encompasses every benefit you are now getting from men you pray to, apply to, who exercise authority. That's a process. But if you're going to be a minister, you have to understand where the destination is and take the people there, guide the people there, step by step. Because that's where you got to go. And then... On your way there, because you will never reach that. You do not have the power to reach that. But on your way there, God will run out and meet you and take up the slack. Hebrews 8.8 For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the day come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And that's what they did when Jesus Christ was there, which was a fulfillment of Isaiah 60, 1 through 3. Greg talks about in his good sermon, you know, he talks about having good sermons, when uh, he is trying to find out the fundamentals of this Israel. He's trying to figure out what those fundamentals actually were. And so he's he's looking up this Isaiah 60, 1-3. But I'm not going to read that now because we're running out of time. 
Uh, we're also going to talk about Constantine and uh, what Constantine did not corrupt the church. I mentioned this in uh, preparing you when the questions came up. And uh, I mentioned it on that pure religion study call. Constantine did not corrupt the church. He created a new church. He established a new church. He sat on a golden throne, claimed himself to be the Pontifex Maximus, and that he now was creating this new church. He said he legalized Christianity. What made it illegal? I asked that early on. And now we're back to that again. So what made the church illegal? Well, it was, you know, we, we talk about this and go read the article in Christian Conflict and, and, uh, Saturninus, uh, who was an emperor, outlawed private religion. And Christianity was private religion. But when he uses the word religion, he's not talking about what you think about God. He was talking about your pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. People had to pay into the temples. That's why they registered their birth certificates at the Temple of Saturn. That's why the benefits came from a building next to the temple. It was funded by the monies that came into the temple. And many of the offerings in the temple were required. If you were a member, you were actually required to pay into the temple. But that, and so that was the religion of the Pharisees were doing this. And the religion in uh, Rome was doing this. And that was what was making the Word of God the non-effect because it wasn't based on charity. It wasn't based upon choice. And the people were becoming things, which we talk about in that study. They were becoming things. They were becoming merchandise. They were becoming human resources because of their covetous practice. Because they wanted guaranteed benefits. And the only way to get those was to force their neighbors to contribute And so they got their neighbors to sign up for this social welfare system that Herod was setting up, and they had to pay in. FDR set up yours, and, uh, you know, with Social Security Administration and Congress, and nobody thought it was wrong because they were already moved. Well, actually, many people thought it was wrong. Many people opposed it. Many people said that it was the mark of the beast back in 1930 and 33 when they were devising this plan. But, it, it, we all forget that. Uh, and we don't think about it. But now you think about it. You're back in the bondage of Egypt. I heard Bundy, who was, uh, acquitted, not acquitted, uh, mistrial. And, uh, he was acquitted in Oregon, but, uh, down there, uh, at the new trial, they, they declared a mistrial because of, uh, you know, hiding, uh, sculptory, uh, evidence, exculpatory evidence. Uh, that is supposed to be made available to the defense. And, uh, I mean, there's all kinds of other abuses going on, and there's now whistleblowers and the whole thing. But anyway, I heard Bundy talking about the Constitution as a divinely inspired document. And I know that idea is out there. And, you know, I think the world of the, what they call the founding fathers, Jefferson, even though, I mean, these are all flawed men. Washington, flawed man. I mean, who isn't flawed? But they also were seeking the truth. And they, you know, good men can have bad ideas. <laughs> so, but, uh, 
And I'm not saying they're kingdom men, but I'm certainly not in agreement with the idea that the Constitution was an inspired document by God. Because we already had a list of instructions in Deuteronomy that tells you what to put in a Constitution if you want to have a ruler who can exercise authority. Because you have to really limit that power because that power will corrupt. And then when you write this all out in your Constitution... That constitution, according to Deuteronomy, was to be read to that leader, that ruler, every day so that he did not usurp this power. Of those five things listed in the constitution, only one of them appears in the constitution of the United States and they do not abide by that. Now that, I've, I've repeated that over and over again. A lot of you who listen regularly have heard that. But now if you want to go out and preach the kingdom, You need to go learn those five things and know how to explain them. We're not going to do it here. But you can find it in the book, Contracts, Covenants, and Constitutions, along with a lot of other information. But uh, you have to go look at it. Now, you can disagree with me. But again, are are you debating in a room by yourself? (laughs) You're going to win that debate. But if you actually want to go up against the facts... I'm it's going to I'm going to scratch the scales off your eyes and so that you can see this but if you don't want to see it you won't go look it up it, the book's free online I'm not keeping secrets from you but anyway you you either go and try to find out why I say that and if somebody wants to get Bundy in touch with me or uh Ann Hall or any of these people who are promoting the constitution I'm not I'm not trying to tear down the constitution or rip it up uh, because, well, maybe a little bit. <laughs> but I'm not physically want to rip it up or do away with it. I, I want to tear it down the way Deuteronomy was talking about tearing down their altars. By raising up the actual way that God said to come together. And if you do that, then you will have the power of God dealing with what you think is usurpations of the Constitution. Because it most of what they're calling usurpations of the Constitution, and I agree, I think Bundy's a pretty nice guy. I think he, he's really sincere. I think he's he does have a case, uh, but he needs to get the whole story, or he's going to be eventually bushwhacked. <laughs> and the whole story is the whole kingdom, the whole truth, and nothing but the whole truth. And if he were to come to me, I would take the time to sit down and show him exactly what he's missing to help him in his battle for liberty under God, which is what he claims to be seeking. But he's 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 missing some key ingredients. Same with Greg Boyd. He's missing some key things. Greg seems to still be looking for it. I don't know about uh, uh, Bundy. I just, I can't, you know, all I do is see, you know, I read articles. I've read trial transcripts, the Hammonds, all this stuff. Hammonds got a lot of problems, but he should not be in jail. He did not do anything to go in jail. And most of the charges against Bundy, he should not be, go to jail for those because they're fraudulent. And that's, that's, that's the case. But is his whole premise correct? No, it's not. I'm not arguing with his heart. I'm just saying some of the technical information he has is incorrect. 
We want to give you the right technical information, but if you don't change your heart, if you don't clean up your act in your heart and in your mind and in your body, I can't help you. The right knowledge will not help you. Anyway, we'll be back. Welcome back to the Keys of the Kingdom. Uh, we were talking about fellowship before, and uh, and I was reading from Luke six thirty. Well, Luke Luke six thirty two says, "For if ye love them which love you, what thanks have you? For sinners also love those that love them." Well, that love of one another is what you want. That's what you want to call fellowship. But the word thanks there is normally not translated thanks. It's normally translated grace. So what he's really saying is for if you love them which love you, what grace have you? Well, aren't you saved by grace? Well, how are you saved if you don't have any grace? Well, I mean, Jesus makes it absolutely clear that if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. You tell me you're saved, but you haven't forgiven somebody. You're not saved. You imagine you're saved. You have to forgive that ye be forgiven. If you don't forgive... Now, people will tell me, oh, no, no, that he was talking to Old Testament people. Now, all we have to do is believe in... No, because the apostles say the same thing. And they're New Covenant. So, don't don't go down that ridiculous road. You have to conform to Christ. You have to follow Christ. If you haven't repented in seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, uh, and you're not, if you think it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods, if you think it's okay not to forgive your brother, if you think it's okay not to even forgive your enemy, you're not there yet. You're under strong delusion because you have believed a lie. New Testament, new covenant. After the crucifixion, that's what they're telling you. And here this He's saying, for if ye love them which love you, you have fellowship, you know, with the, you know, your club, your Kiwanis, your whatever it is, and you all love each other and you all really care about one another. You don't necessarily have any grace because you only love those who love you. For sinners who also love those that love them. You know, the mafia. So, just because you're all living on the same block and you all have block parties or you're all in the unregistered church together or the un, uh, unchurched group together, that's not Christianity. You have to love those that don't love you. Now, yes, amongst the Amish, they they help take care of one another, so they're automatically exempt from Obamacare. Everybody wants, you know, repeal Obamacare, repeal Obamacare. Amish are already exempt. They, they're not stuck in that. They're not having any trouble. They don't have to go out there and demonstrate to appeal Obamacare because they're exempt. Why? Because they're already taking care of one another. But were they doing the same care for the sinners? <laughs> or were they 
isolating themselves by trimming the corner of their beard and wearing certain suspenders and hats and outfit. I always, I've told this story many years ago, talking to an Amish person, asking them why they wear this outfit. You know, I didn't call it outfit, all this black clothes and everything. And they says, well, we don't believe in drawing attention to ourselves. And I looked at him and I like, I couldn't hardly believe the answer. <laughs> and I said, it's, you know, something to the effect, well, that's not working. <laughs> because it does draw attention to them. It separates them out. It makes them different from the other people in an artificial way. What really makes them different is that they actually take care of one another and that they would expand on that kingdom search and actually, and some of them probably are. I'm not, I don't want to pick on all of them, but the kingdom, seeking the kingdom of God is an individual journey. You don't get in because you belong to a group. You get in because you're going that way. Now remember, Jesus calls all the people to the wedding feast. Now that's not the church. That's the people coming to the church for the wedding feast. The bride is the church. But all the others are invited into the feast, into this protective coverture of this whole feast. And they're all guests of the bridegroom and the bride. But almost nobody came. They went out and they asked here and there and, and almost nobody came. They all had excuses. Jesus is telling us that story. That's what we should expect. So when somebody talks on the uh, on the study call and says... I don't see people coming. Neither does Jesus. (laughs) So you have to reach out. And and so what does Jesus say? Go out and look in the hedges. You know, in the streets, anywhere. Find them. Who will come? That's what we're doing. And we're we're wondering, will Greg Boyd come? Will will these other people I mentioned from time to time, will they come? They they seemed to be on their way, and there were many people who followed Jesus and saw something in Jesus. But they would only go so far. They said, well, whoa, whoa, we want to be nice to one another, but we don't want to take over all the social welfare and and eat your flesh and drink your blood. They do it like you are. Because you, here's a rich guy. Jesus was a rich man. It says he was rich. And people try to argue that away, but... It, the reality is his family was rich. His uncle was one of the richest men in, in the Roman Empire. So chances are he was rich. And there's a lot of evidence that uh, Paul, I mean not Paul, but Joseph, he wasn't just a humble old carpenter. He was a big contractor and w- w- who could go down to Egypt and make a living building big buildings. He was He was a sharp cookie. But Jesus gave up that wealth. Though he was rich, he made himself poor. He let himself become poor. Why? Because he was going to become a Levite. After his father passed away, His the eldest man in his family was who? John the Baptist. And uh, John the Baptist was a Levite. And born a Levite. Father was working in the temple. And so... And so, and what does John the Baptist say? This is the one that comes after me. Coming after me in what? In my office. As literally the high priest of the faithful. Not of the temple. This is a dead stone temple in Jerusalem. But of the faithful. You know, all this stuff in the news where, you know, they, 
Israel wants its capital in Jerusalem. That may end up being a disaster. It's fine if they want that. I don't care. They shouldn't ask what I want. They got to ask what God wants. <laughs> well, the Israel is not a place. It's a way. Always was a way. So anyway, what love have you? What grace have you? If you only love those who love you. So if you want fellowship, you... If fellowship is not something you get from other people, it's something you offer other people, which is love. And that's your choice. Do not make the church, the congregation, or your block party, or the unchurched, the source of your comfort. If you're not comfortable already, you're missing the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is a comforter. It is the comforter. So that's what you need to look at. And if God is keeping you isolated, it's he, that is a gift. If God is keeping you out of these feel-good fellowships, that is a gift. So that you can continue to yearn for the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Where you can grow in the house and temple of the Lord. And become one of the stones of that temple. One of those lively stones. Who will help fit together and help explain this. We have these barriers. These these veils. These scales over our eyes. So, you know, I tell people. Learn to sit still. Learn to be quiet. Set aside your doctrines. God will write his doctrines so that you can understand. And they will conform to what he already said. What Jesus already said. They will conform to Old and New Testament once you understand that. And that's what we're going to be doing is showing you some of the places where people do not understand how this all works. So I talked a week or so ago about people who were having thugs and robbers come into their store and just smash the glass and steal stuff and just take stuff out and everything. And, they, you know, they have no defense. And in these many of these countries, they can't have a gun or anything and shoot them. Not that that is the ultimate solution, but uh, they actually go up to, and try to push these guys out who have a hammer in their hands with no weapons whatsoever. And, uh, and they can't get them out because when they're pushing this guy, this guy is robbing. I've had to push guys out the door, two guys. And, uh, Pushed them out, pushed them out the door with one hand, just flat, just laid it out, and they moved out ahead of me. <laughs> and there was, it was a cold night, and they went out in their underwear, <laughs> in a house where they should not have been, and they, they thought they could get away with it till I showed up. The power of the Holy Spirit is, is remarkable. But anyway, what I said was that they should get, you know, their, all their neighbors on their speed dial and get together. And then one of our ministers pointed out that there's a, there's a software you can download to your phone called getcell411.com and you guys can try it out and see how it works. Go to getcell411.com. There's probably others out there and you put it on your phone and you can dial and call you know, I don't know how it all works yet. I haven't done it with myself, but you can dial all the people that are your trusted friends and if there's an emergency. And all they have to do is show up. You know, I saw a deal where uh, somebody was trying to intimidate a woman who did not want to get vaccinations for her, her child. 
And so they showed up to intimidate, but she was not easily intimidated. And they ended up leaving without hardly saying anything because she just kept pressing them back that this was intimidation. She wanted their badge numbers and all this kind of stuff. But sometimes, you know, children's services can be frightening. I've got another, the Holmes family had a baby taken away from them. We can show them how to get that baby back, but they have to be seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There's no little gimmick that you do. You you need the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you only care about your freedom and yourself and what you want, you're you're not going to bring in the Holy Spirit. You have to care about others who don't even love you. You have to care about the people at Children's Services. And, and you have to know how to care about them. And that's a power. That's a force. That's a two-edged sword of truth. But you have to know how to do that. And if you've been isolating yourself, then you don't know how to do that. Now, I live way out in the wilderness, but I don't isolate myself. I'm not a hermit. Uh, but I live out here for another reason, which I will not tell you yet. <laughs> but anyway, you're going to have to learn to see with new eyes in, in a new way. And... uh and you have to get a perspective on things. I'll give you. Uh, I also saw a guy who he was advocating vegetarianism, which is fine. If if that's what you want is vegetarianism, you can go ahead and seek that. I'm a shepherd. I know, understand the symbiotic relationship of a shepherd or a herdsman and his flock or his herd. I understand how that works. And I get to eat of the herd, but I also keep the herd alive. If we all became vegetarians you would have to do away with most of the animals in this country. <laughs> you know, people think that, oh, well, nature will take care of everything. Well, Lewis and Clark coming across the the West, they found whole areas, vast areas, that nothing was growing but fleas <laughs> and, uh, and gophers. Uh, that is uh, nature. We're supposed to dress it and keep it. And nothing is dressing and keeping it more than a herdsman. And uh, because he is tending to the land that tends to his sheep, that tends to him. And it's symbiotic. And that is nature. So anyway, that's another whole story. But uh, what I wanted to bring up is that this guy brought up this, this old image where you see a big, huge blue dot, a circle dot on a board, and a big, huge red dot uh, in a circle on the board. And he says, which of these is bigger? And then he goes through and he asks, how many think that the blue one is bigger? And how many think that the red one is bigger? And uh, me, I didn't look at the dot. Well, I did look at the dot. And I could see if I looked at the dots one way, the red looked a little bigger. And if I looked at the dots another way, you know, adjusted my eyes, the blue looked bigger. And I knew it had to do with the colors. And the way my eye was receiving the colors, that it would look bigger. But I didn't look square at the dot. I knew that wasn't how you tell. And also, I knew there was a question here. So I measured the distance between the bottom of the dot and the board because I knew the board was square. <laughs> I mean, he could fool me if, he, if the board wasn't square. He could actually screw me up. But and then I measured the distance between the top of the dots and the top of the board. And I could see that they were the same. So, ergo, the dots are the same. Oh, well, lo and behold, you know, that's what he eventually revealed is that the dots are the same. But you have this 
you get you get this preconceived notion that something is so, and then you're stuck in that. And he's absolutely right. But then now he he began to proceed to bring up ideas about uh, raising livestock and and that symbiotic relationship. Although he didn't mention that word, um, and how we need to unconnect from that idea. Well, we need to unconnect from a lot of ideas, but. Uh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's just trying to get you into his rut and his way of thinking th- uh, thinking things and seeing things. You have to see things differently. But you n- you cannot decide this based on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You cannot figure it out yourself. You need the Holy Spirit to come into your heart. He will not come into the proud and arrogant heart of an ego egotist or although you may not think of yourself as an egotist <laughs> if you're proud of your religion if you if you if you take offense when somebody criticizes your religion when you hear me say something about the doctrines of Christ that is different than what you already believe and it makes you angry you got a problem because i can listen to you and you're not going to make me angry but uh for some reason or other when you listen to me that makes you angry it makes you upset. Well, there's something you don't see. There, you you cannot upset somebody who is dwelling in the kingdom of heaven. You cannot make them angry if they're holy in the kingdom, if they're living with the Holy Spirit in them, dwelling in them. You and and sin and and this quest for sin and sinful activities. Uh, and coveting one another, uh, that's you, you're going to find in your own life. You know, I've se- seen where people were. Could you really use welfare? Could you really use assistance from the government? But something in them would not let them do it. Would not let them apply for that benefit. They didn't want it. Now, I I know this is in my life, but I've seen it in other people's lives. That's a kingdom track. Something in them will not let them covet that. Now, it may be mixed with personal pride and and fear of loss of esteem because you have to depend on somebody else. Now, that's another reason why you gather not to be helped, but to help others. So, that's, that's a different mindset. And and you you have to be received that from God. If you're actually understanding what I'm talking about and... And there's many levels to what I'm talking about. You do that by the grace of God. Now you want to increase that grace. Then you have to love those that don't even love you. This is why when you get into a congregation, that congregation should be meeting every week, not only to help the people that might need help in that congregation, but help people that are not in your congregation. This is what your minister is supposed to be doing. He's not supposed to be isolating you off in that congregation. You're certainly not to be isolating yourself off by not coming together, not calling up together. I mean, we try to get all of our congregations on, on conference calls, and most of them will shift them around to meet work schedules and to try to get everybody to show up. That's very important that everybody show up. Even though if it's only a phone call, only on email groups, whatever. But it, it shows a dedication 
to the idea of coming together, not just for yourself, because you say, what? Well, how does that benefit me? I mean, we don't even have a band. <laughs> I don't get a good feeling. Well, you come to serve. You come to find out how you can serve. And then you sacrifice, because Christ sacrificed. If you have His nature in you, you will find yourself sacrificing. And so, you know, because I wrote down the blue circle, red circle note here, I also wrote down the red button. So you, you all know the story of the red button, which we really don't have much time to tell. But basically, the guy shows up with a box with a red button on it. You push it, you will get a reward. But somebody somewhere will die. Something bad will happen to somebody you don't even know. It will happen to them. And the people push the button finally in the story. And a guy shows up instantly at the door with a million dollar check or a billion dollar check, whatever it is. And hands it to him. And then he collects the box and he's going out the door. And they said, where are you taking the box? He says, don't worry about it. I'm going to give it to somebody that doesn't know you and you don't know. So, what the, and they leave you hanging there with the people staring at each other. Because what it means is that when they, the next guy, if he decides to push that button, they die. <laughs> and the check doesn't get cashed. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, the point is, is that this is what we do to each other every day. We want these benefits. We want somebody to take care of our parents, somebody to take care of the elderly in our community. So what if we, we started a, uh, I don't want to say an old folks home, a retreat home. And we would, in the retreat home, people could come and maybe uh, learn to meditate, learn to eat a different kind of diet. You know, maybe they have dietary problems. They're not eating right. We show them different ways to eat to help their body, to cleanse their body, uh, take long walks in the high desert mountain air. and But we also will take in elderly that need assisted living in our community or even outside of our community, usually in our community so they can stay close to their relatives. But we will actually take in whole families for, you know, a week or so and teach them how to take care of their elderly parents at home in their own home. So they, they would come for a short time. We would help them take care. Then we would send them home with all kinds of ideas on how to help them. Whether they have, you know, maybe, you know, the other day I was having trouble with a finger in my hand, several fingers in my hand that were cramping up. And I had pulled like a muscle. At least that's what I felt like I had done when I was pulling some uh debris out of this frozen ground. And I was jerking on it, and I felt this terrible pain, and and it would come by. And then all of a sudden, it would go away after a week. And then a week or so, it would go by, and all of a sudden, sudden the pain started up again. I couldn't figure out what it was. And actually, somebody gave me some, someone was inspired, it gave me a little hint. And uh, that it may have something to do with something else in another part of my body. Well, I found that if I... Uh, we have one room that has a real low ceiling and I can, I'm pretty tall and I can reach up and I can actually touch the ceiling. So I put my hands flat up against the ceiling to kind of stretch out that muscle and then I pushed up with my shoulders against the ceiling 
I could feel the ceiling kind of lifting a little bit. I didn't want my hands to go through the sheetrock. <laughs> so, but so I just pushed up. The pain instantly went away. It's something in my shoulders. I've had broken shoulders completely uh, in accidents way back in my youth. And anyways, it's something in my shoulder. And so now I've had the pain come back a couple times since. But I just reach my hand straight over my head and reach and push up, even if there isn't a wall there or a ceiling, and the pain goes away. It instantly goes away. Something else pulling on something. And I will continue to explore that. So now you have problems in your society. You want to make America great again. You want to, want, want to get everybody back on the straight and narrow. They, they, they think returning to the Constitution is going to do that. No, it's not. Returning to the kingdom of God. The problem is, your churches aren't telling you what the kingdom of God is. What it looks like. How it operates. And so, we want to do that. We'll do it as many people as we can. But until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.